Welcome to the Valley College Connection, where John Kawai and Scott Wigan, two Valley professors, engage in a conversation about success with educators and students. Each week, they'll sit down with a different guest to find out ways each of us have had to plan, persevere, and overcome to where we are now. The show will also highlight resources and services that are working to make a difference at Valley College. So we are joined today by Megan Kaysen, library faculty at Los Angeles Valley College. Thank you so much for sitting down with us today, Megan. Thank you. Happy to be here. If you could share with us your journey, story, path as to how you got here to Los Angeles Valley College and take it as far back as you'd like to. Um, So I was born in New York, um, but I moved to uh, Arizona with my family when I was pretty young after my parents got divorced. But I guess I was old enough to know that Phoenix, Arizona wasn't a great place to grow up. Um, Mm. (laughs) I pretty immediately missed living near the ocean, being surrounded by trees. Living in the desert was a really difficult transition for me. How old were you when you moved? I was eight. Oh, okay. So definitely old enough to have all those memories of of what it was before. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And because my parents had split up, I would still go back to New York uh, to visit my dad and my extended family every summer. So I got to, you know, see annually what I was missing. So it was always, I returned to Arizona with a heavy heart at the end of every summer. Um, And it was sweltering there. Um, All the houses look the same in Phoenix. I don't know if you've spent any time there, but it's just a really sort of uninspired place to grow up. It's funny because now as an adult, I go back to Arizona and I see that there's so much more to it than just the Phoenix metropolitan area. But as a kid, it was a pretty uh, bleak place. How did the uh, transition to elementary school uh, happen? Were the kids nice to you? Were they mean to you? As a kid, I was pretty dorky. Um, didn't really fit in very well. So that was, um, that was a challenge for sure. Um, but you know, eventually I found my tribe and it was fine. But I think, um, part of my, my struggles as a kid is, you know, I grew up in a pretty chaotic household. You know, I mentioned that my, uh, parents split up when I was very young and the neighborhood that we grew up in once I grew up in, once we moved to Phoenix was, I would say pretty solidly middle and working class, but, um, you know, my mom was either single or in and out of relationships and our home life was very unstable and she was always struggling to make ends meet for us. So, um, that definitely put me in a different position than a lot of uh, the kids I was going to school with. I grew up around a lot of substance abuse. So that was something that, um, set me apart from a lot of my peers. Um, At the same time, you know, I always did pretty well in school um, without having to really try very hard. So I didn't have a lot of structure at home. I wasn't getting that from my mom, but I was still um, getting by and succeeding and, you know, getting A's and, you know, being in like the honors classes. So I always felt like, um, yeah, I don't know, just kind of uh, skating by in a way, but, you know, without having to really try. Mm -hmm. And then how did you, did you, how did you resolve all this stuff? Did you not bring friends home or did you spend more time out of the house or? Um, I definitely uh, spent a lot of time with my friends and at my friends home. So once I did uh, make friends in Phoenix, um, I became sort of like a surrogate daughter of a couple of different families um, who really looked out for me. And also the library was really important to me growing up, as you might imagine. Um, Books were a big escape for me. And uh, yeah, so I mean that, you know, obviously I am, I'm a librarian here at Valley College and I think part of my attraction to this profession just has to do with um, the refuge that the library provided for me as a kid. So once you got into high school and this, and this continued on, were there any other people, any teachers that sort of inspired you as what did you do, wanted to do in the next step of your sort of academic career? I did have one teacher, uh, my journalism professor, uh, and I actually did wind up uh, studying journalism in college, which um, in retrospect may not have been the best choice, but because you know there was that person for me in high school who I really uh, connected with, my journalism teacher, Ms. Nielsen, um, that was something that I was uh, interested in pursuing, you know, as editor of my high school yearbook, I was on the newspaper staff, and I was, you know, and I was interested in, even at that young age, social justice issues, um, although I didn't really see myself in that continuum. No, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting to think about, um, I think here at Valley, we spend a lot of time talking about 
you know, equity and privilege. And I think part of our jobs here, we reflect on that on sort of a daily basis with the, the students that we work with here and the populations that we serve and how we want, you know, we want our students to experience success and we want them to have good outcomes and we want them to transfer or, you know, accomplish whatever their, their goals might be. And when I think about, you know, being in high school and coming from this sort of um, chaotic household, something that served me, I think, was first of all, being white um, and sort of my proximity to people who had more privilege than me, um, my proximity to the middle class. And also, even though I didn't really have a lot of discipline or structure at home, um, the message was always that I was going to go to college. That was just never questioned at all. So even though I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do, and maybe I had this journalism teacher in high school that I really liked, and so I thought, well, I guess I'll go to my local state university and major in journalism, because I really had no idea. But I did internalize that message that um, that the next thing for me to do would be to go to college. Okay. Was that message coming from your mom? Yeah, she did. Yeah, yeah okay. she, my mom definitely... Um, you know that yeah it was it was unquestioned I always got that message from her and of course it was reinforced by the teachers at my school because you know I did relatively well in school without having to really try so it's like well you're going to go to college and I and I do wonder you know looking back um if my circumstances were a little bit different if I would have gotten that same message so where did you end up going I went to Arizona State University. Okay. Um, yeah, I went there immediately out of high school. I moved out the summer that I graduated, and I made many mistakes. Um, I took out a lot of student loans. I moved in with my boyfriend. <laughs> I did not, I kind of bypassed the whole, um, you know, student life experience, I think, by doing that. And yeah, and I chose a major that in retrospect probably wasn't the best choice because, I mean, this is, I mean, I guess we didn't know where where the field of journalism was going quite at that time. This was 1997, mm-hmm. but there were there were inklings. There were um, hints that it yeah. was going to die. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, you know, I probably would have been better served by going to community college first. And that's actually part of the reason why I love working here so much is because I do feel like this is a really great transitional place for students who are still figuring things out mm-hmm. and um, helps them avoid some of the mistakes of, you know, borrowing too much money, um, taking, you know, majoring the wrong thing, you know, wasting their time taking classes that may not be what's going to serve them in the long run and where they actually want their careers to go. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, but I went to four-year school. And then how old was your boyfriend at the time? <laughs> uh, he was um, older than me. He was, I think I was 18. He was 24. Okay. And then how were you able to just afford college at the time? Was it purely loans? Yeah, I took out a bunch of loans and I worked. Okay. Yeah. When when you're at that kind of crossroads in, in your senior year and you're getting messaging from your mom and from your teachers, you know, you're going to college, mm-hmm. was there um, any any consideration or, or were, was it like automatically ASU or were you, did you explore any other options or community college or out of state trying to get away from, you know, Phoenix? I did. Um, I actually... Uh, was seriously considering going to Evergreen State College in Washington. Um, And I even went there for a visit my senior year, and I did get a scholarship to attend, but it was just to cover the cost of in-state tuition. Um, And so, you know, as an out-of-state student, I would have, at least I had the foresight to know that I didn't want to borrow that much money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would have been a huge financial burden. Um, so I ultimately decided that staying in state and going to um, the school that was, you know, an hour away from where I grew up was probably the thing that made the most sense. Mm-hmm. And then in college, was there any special experiences that you had or moments that you had? Special experiences? Um, I don't know. Like, undergrad for me was kind of weird um, because, like I said, you know, I moved in immediately with my boyfriend. Um, so I kind of bypassed the whole student life experience. Um, I had grown up, you know, in high school hanging out with older kids um, who already lived in the town that I moved to to go to college. So I was really heavily involved in the punk scene um, in high school and in college. And so when I actually moved to Tempe, where a lot of my friends who 
went to shows and were in bands, lived. I kind of kept doing that same thing I was doing in high school, except now I was in college and I was living with my boyfriend. Um, so it was, and college was fun, but I feel like it wasn't the, the typical experience that most students have. I felt very disconnected from um, a lot of my peers. I didn't make those important undergraduate relationships that I think are, are can be really helpful for you know the long term. Um, particularly you know when it comes time later when you decide hey I want to go to graduate school and you realize that you're not sure which professor can write a letter of recommendation for you because even though you got mostly A's you were totally anonymous the whole time that you were in school. Um, so yeah. Um, Did you have the whole look? Like what color was your hair? Do you have any interesting piercings? My hair's always red. <laughs> Was there any connection between the punk scene and the journalism major? Was there any crossover there, like as far as your your interest in sort of documenting or writing for, you know, local, I don't know, magazines or yeah. zines or anything like that? Yeah, so I did a zine in high school. Um, and uh, actually, yeah, you know, I mentioned I was I was editor of my high school yearbook and um, I, was, uh, I was on the newspaper staff and then I also had... Um, a women's issues club that I did start at my high school. So that was like one notable thing that I did. Um, and we produced a zine together. And then I continued in, in college to collaborate on zines with my peers. And I did write for um, my college, uh, it was like the weekly um, magazine that we had. And I did a lot of music coverage for them. Um, and I even wrote for the local weekly, um, the Phoenix New Times at the time, doing some music and band coverage there as well. So yeah, um, there was there was definitely a connection there. Um, I was interested in you know politics and music, um, but uh, yeah, I think those those in, well interest in music. Um, writing about music gets really boring after a while. <laughs> that 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 was my experience with it. Um, so I got I got a little burnout and I I guess I just felt like I wasn't really at a certain point um, particularly after graduating wasn't really contributing um, much of value to society I don't know I mean I do think that that music journalism it has its place and there are some really wonderful music journalists but it's just not it wasn't really fulfilling me so after you graduated then what were, what were you doing you were as a contract uh, writer, or were you hired by anyone in particular? Or Yeah, so um, I did a lot of freelance writing um, initially out of college. Um, and uh, I wound up getting, I think my first full-time job out of college was for this publication called uh, Nephrology News and Issues, which, <laughs> so it was a specialized publication for, um, for uh, the dialysis industry. So <laughs> nephrology is uh, has to do with kidney care. Um, so it was basically a publication written for uh, doctors who deliver dialysis, dialysis clinics. So I became for a short time an expert in um, nephrology issues. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it was like, it was like the perfect example of you know they're just. Uh, I did work for a minute at the Arizona Republic, which was the was a newspaper, um, the main rag in Phoenix. But I was an editorial assistant, and I had a hard time, um, you know, working my way up the ladder. And then I got this job that was full time at Nephrology News and Issues, and I think it's a perfect example of the kind of um, I don't know sad jobs that are out there for journalists. <laughs> like, this is not what I went to school about. And then I was still doing music writing at the si on the side. Um, but then the my my partner at the time, um, you know, we both graduated from college around the same time, and he wanted to move to LA to work in the entertainment industry. And since I obviously did not have a lot going on in Phoenix, I was not very attached to nephrology news and issues. Um, I decided to uh, go with him. Um, so we moved to LA together. I wound up taking a job that was completely outside of um, what I had been doing previously. Uh, I worked for uh, this fashion company called X Large for a while. That was <laughs> that was started by um, some of the Beastie the Boys. Beastie Boys, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I was. Uh, I did like their international customer service, and 
Um, but it was just like a, it was a very small company, and it was fun working there. But it also, again, not very fulfilling, not where I saw myself in the long term. So it was definitely um, a drift, I would say, after college. Did you have any uh, considerations while you were finishing up undergrad about graduate school? Did any professors plant any seeds at that point, or did it cross your mind that hey, maybe you know maybe after this I will apply to graduate school, or was that not kind of on your radar at that point? It was. It was on my radar in the far distance. I mean, I, I definitely saw myself continue my education. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew that I love to write, um, but I was very burnt out on doing journalism. Um, I realized that I didn't, that writing just to get, writing for a paycheck was not satisfying to me. Um, so what I had thought about at the time was possibly maybe getting my MFA in the long term. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also felt like I didn't have enough life experience to really uh, justify that. And an MFA is basically a counseling license, right? No, no, no. MFA, um, I wanted to get a master's in um, fiction writing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I thought I wanted to write novels um, because I couldn't really stand doing journalism anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, Although I, I do think you evaded a big trap, right? Because oftentimes when students get stuck in their major and they're sort of not quite inspired by where it's going and then to double down on more debt for it yeah is is terrifying right and i usually try to tell my students that if you're not happy where you are more grad school and more education is not necessarily going to make you happy right right you're probably going to be able to pay for grad school once yeah <laughs> so m- make sure that 100%. that you know what you want to make that second investment in yeah, yeah, and I and I wasn't totally sure, and I also felt like if I am going to write novels, I need to live more or something. Like I just didn't feel like I was coming from a place where I was ready to do that. And you know, four years of college, I I needed a break. Um, so yeah, living in LA with my boyfriend, he's trying to get entertainment jobs. I'm working at X Large, trying to figure out what the heck I want to do with myself. Um, killing time. And uh, one of my best friends um, who lived in the Bay Area and did his undergrad at Berkeley mentioned, he was working in the library. Like he was kind of in the same place that I was. He'd finished school um, and he was working at the library still at Berkeley and telling me how much he loved it. And he was thinking about going to library school, which is something, you know, flashback to um, spending a lot, of the, a lot of my time as a kid in the library and always thinking of the library as a safe space and um, really taking a refuge in books as a kid. I'm like, huh, that is a career that I had never considered, but sounds amazing. And I'm going to try to get a job in a library and see if I like it. Um, so I totally shifted gears and I very intentionally sought out a job um, in a library and I wound up working at um, FITM, the Fashion Institute mm-hmm. Design and Merchandising in their library there. Um, met a wonderful librarian there um, who really became a mentor to me. Um, and that's what what ultimately set me on my career path. Um, I think the combination of you know, you know where I'd come from and what libraries meant to me and then the practical experience as an adult actually working in one and realizing that this is a job and a career that I, I could I could really enjoy. Um, so then I started looking at library schools. So what part of that job did you find appealing at that time? Um, at that time, I really liked working with our collections. So, um, you know, I was into fashion. Um, I, you know, we had an amazing collection of uh, fashion books, historical fashion. There was a, the costume museum there. I've always loved art and museums. And so having access to that was really amazing to me. And I liked working with the students too. But, you know, at the time, um, I was really fixated on, uh, on collection management. Like that's where I thought as a librarian that I would want to go into. So when I did eventually apply for library school and get accepted, my focus in school was on art librarianship, special collections, cataloging archives. Like I did not want to work with the public. Like I just wanted to surround myself with stuff and describe it and organize it and and that's and kind of call it a day Mm -hmm. so um finding myself you know here um has been definitely interesting and um really 
uh, transformative. So where did you actually go to um, uh, um, grad school then? I went to UCLA. Um, so that friend of mine who um, lived in the Bay Area and was working at, at the Berkeley Library um, applied to UCLA also. Another friend of mine coincidentally applied the same year as us also to go to library school. I feel like my graduate school experience was the undergraduate experience I never had, mm -hmm. right? Was very involved in campus life. Um, I got to know my professors. I um, had a really you know, uh, close circle of friends and we really supported each other through our coursework. Um, and uh, you know, I loved going to UCLA. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was a really great experience. And I assume Tempe was a commuter school when you went there? You know, I think it's become more of that now. And I know ASU has, like, spread out, like, tentacles all over, like, the Phoenix metropolitan area. Like, they have satellite campuses everywhere. Um, at that time, ASU had huge, and they still have it, I imagine, but, you know, tons of residential housing. Um, it seemed like most of the the students my peers my age lived in dorms. Mm. Um, I was one of the exceptions to that. I think now it has definitely become more of a commuter school and they've done more to um, improve the public transportation in Phoenix. Sure. So it's more of an option now. So you enjoyed the, the UCLA campus life. Was there a point at UCLA where you made the, the choice to sort of change your emphasis in terms of library science? Um, no. Uh, so, John, mm -hmm. I know you really wanted to talk with me about my roller derby career, and mm -hmm. that's where that sort of comes into it, because it was around, I would say it was a year after I moved to L.A., and around the time that I was applying to library school that I started to play roller derby. Um, and it was also, it coincided with me splitting up with the person that I had moved to L.A. to be with, mm -hmm. and um, I was pretty alone and looking for a tribe, and um, and I knew that roller derby was a thing, um, that there were these new leagues. I mean, this is like 2001 or two, that there were these leagues that were sprouting up that were DIY around the country, notably in Texas. Um, so I was aware of this sort of, like all these punk rock ladies who were starting to play roller derby again after it had kind of died off in, right. the, in the 80s. There was this revival in the early aughts. And, even though um, I was pretty unathletic as a kid and my idea of myself was you know, sort of this nerdy bookworm, I was a really good roller skater. Um, and when I was a kid, uh, my mom would just drop me off at the roller rink for an entire weekend and um, I became a really, really uh, pretty strong roller skater. So when roller derby was starting to make this comeback, um, and I was in LA and sort of aimless and not really sure, you know, what I was doing with myself and I didn't really have a lot of friends. Um, I decided to see if there's a roller derby league starting in LA and I looked on Craigslist and sure enough, um, the LA Derby Dolls were recruiting for skaters. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I went to practice um, and it turns out that a lot of the women who were drawn to roller derby um, were really into the idea of um, <laughs> we're really into it for the kitsch factor, I would say, and we're not necessarily um, experienced skaters or very athletic at that time. Um, and so me, with my roller skating prowess from childhood, um, turned out to be like a, a pretty strong contender for, for um, making a team with the Derby Dolls, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I did. Um, so all through grad school, I was also playing roller derby, um, and that also played into some of the the career decisions that I made. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> what was what was your role? Were you a jammer? What, what were you? Were you a blocker? So I was I was a jammer, um, and I did I I could go both ways, but I primarily jammed, which is the person who um, scores the points, mm -hmm. as you know if you've ever watched a roller derby game. Um, for our listeners who may not have ever watched a roller derby game, um, on the track you have. Uh, Depending on the league rules, four or five skaters from each team on the track at a time, um, a whistle blows, uh, the pack takes off, a second whistle blows about, I don't know, 20 or 30 seconds later, and the jammers take off. And the jammers are racing each other to get through the pack. 
and the skaters in the pack, those are called blockers. They're playing offense and defense at the same time. So they're trying to help their jammer through while blocking the jammer from the opposing team. Uh, skater has to get through the pack once, come back, lap the pack again the second time through for every um, skater that you pass, you get every skater from the opposing team that you pass, you get a point for your team. Um, so there's a clock running the whole time. Uh, different leagues play by different rules. It might be a 60 second jam or it might be a two minute jam, depending. Um, so yeah, that definitely uh, took up a lot of my time. <laughs> Do you have any good fights? Any good hair pulling? Any it's a full contact sport. Um, it is not scripted. It was scripted it back was in scripted, the day. Yeah. Yes. So the sort of the roller derby revival that happened in the early 2000s, the idea was, you know, totally unscripted, um, full contact with their rules. So like, you know, um, back in ye olden times, um, I know like elbowing was a really big thing and like they would get into fist fights and brawls and whatever. And um, throw people over the ring. Yes. It, it was basically, <laughs> yes. it was basically pro wrestling with roller Yes, 100%. Right. So we didn't go that route. Um, you know, we were not supposed to fight, although, you know, things did sometimes happen and I have definitely gone over the rail before. Oh, have you I'll, really? Yeah. Um, not because somebody threw me, but I just flew <laughs> <laughs> on a couple of occasions. Um, but yeah, it was, in, roller derby was a really um, incredible experience because I, I feel like I just learned so much about myself from it and it really changed me as a person, like pretty fundamentally. I mean, you know, like I grew up with this idea of myself as being sort of this like bookish nerd, right? And I didn't, I never really thought of myself as as really strong or physically capable. And it kind of taught me that I had this whole other side of myself because, I mean, I mentioned that when roller derby first started coming back in LA, the women who were doing it weren't necessarily that athletic. That definitely changed over time. And there was sort of this tide of these, of this changeover of skaters. When, it, when the women who kind of started the league kind of took on a more managerial role, I would say, and then stronger, more athletic women who'd maybe grown up playing other sports like skateboarding or snowboarding or did like, um, you know, competitive roller skating, things like that, um, were then drawn to the sport. We, we had, you know, former gymnasts. And so just like the athleticism went way up. And for anybody that started early on and wanted to, to keep skating, like you needed to, to train constantly. And so that's kind of where I was at, you know, when I was in grad school, I'm like, okay, I'm in school full time. This is my main focus, but I am also training, you know, every night of the week, if I'm not at skate practice, I'm at the gym or I'm running or I'm riding my bike. Um, so it really became a huge focus for me. And it also, it paid the bills for a while too, because um, Skating on a team didn't necessarily pay, but uh, we were able to get a lot of commercial work um, through Derby because I think that was sort of like, you know, I would say around 2006, seven was kind of like the peak in popularity mm -hmm. for like this more modern incarnation of roller derby. Is that so, when Whippet came out? Exactly. And, and they had all those documentaries about the... the the Austin leagues. And... Yeah. So there was the roller girls TV show, which you're referring to. Um, and I skated with those women and they are amazing. Um, and then, you know, whip it came out a couple of years after that. So, you know, I was skating with the Derby dolls around that time. Some of my teammates were actually in whip it. Um, you know, we were doing, uh, commercials. We were opening up our set for, um, film and TV work. So I helped do, um, PR for the Derby Dolls, so I coordinated a lot of that. So yeah, it was like a whole, like I developed so many different skills <laughs> through um, through roller derby, like sort of being able to um, not only, you know, physically compete in the sport and, you know, becoming an athlete, but then also some of those, you know, managerial things like, you know, um, helping to organize the league, because it was all DIY, we ran it ourselves. Um, and then also like working with a team and like, you know, having teammates and that camaraderie that comes with that. Like I've never, I'd never played a team sport before. So that was really um, life-changing for me. And also the, this, the discipline that roller derby taught me, which like I grew up without any rules, without a very structured home life. And um, in order to succeed at roller derby, I had to be disciplined. I, you know, had to train constantly. Um, 
and yeah I'd, I'd never imposed those kinds of rules on myself before and it really um made a difference yeah i mean there's something really compelling about it to young girls my my daughter she watches whip it <laughs> over and over and over and just to sort of see girls as strong yeah right and i think girls in charge of something and owning all of it yeah right and i think there's just something really attractive to it to her yeah. for her yeah and it's interesting now because um uh, so I played bank track roller derby. Um, flat track is probably much more common now. There's a huge, uh, actually, international organization called WIFTA, Women's Flat Track Roller Derby Association. Um, that's kind of the the main face of roller derby today. Um, and so there's you know leagues in every city, including lots of junior leagues. Um, so now you know young women are growing up exposed to roller derby, playing roller derby. So the athleticism has even gotten you know much beyond what it was when I was skating I retired in 2010 I think Mm -hmm. yeah and um yeah it's definitely gotten a lot more fierce uh since then I think it's you know amazing um so the connection to (laughs) (laughs) my career choices um because I had talked earlier about how you know I imagined myself working you know, in a library, more in a behind-the-scenes capacity, in an archival kind of role. Um, because I was so focused on my derby career, and when I finished uh, graduate school, I wasn't ready for a full-time library job. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to piece together some part-time work and focus more on, you know, training and derby stuff, whatever. Um, and so I, I took two part-time jobs that uh, definitely changed the course of my life, and I'm so glad that I did. One was um, as the program director for a nonprofit organization called Access Books. Um, And what Access Books does, and I still work with them to this day, is we refurbish uh, inner city school libraries. Um, The other job was as an adjunct reference librarian at Glendale Community College. Um, I'm also still employed by Glendale Community College. at the time, I saw you know these as just jobs, a way to pay the bills, until um, I was done with Derby and then you know got a job full time in a museum or whatever it was I thought I wanted to do, and definitely the work that I did with that I continue to do with Access Books, um, I would say really radicalized me in terms of um, issues around equity and education. Uh, so. We primarily serve schools in LAUSD um, that are Title I and have a really low book-to-student ratio. And uh, part of my role with them um, would be, uh, you know, a school would apply for our service. I would go out to the school, meet the principal, see the library, talk to the library at the school, evaluate the collection. And just seeing the conditions of these libraries here in LA getting to these neighborhoods that I would never have been into in any other circumstances and just seeing um, just the disparity um, really opened my eyes to um, just the lack of resources that so many kids in the public education system here in LA have to deal with. And, you know, I think about growing up in Phoenix, um, you know, my neighborhood was was middle class. And even though, um, you know, my my family was probably lower middle class. Um, I still had access to so many resources. And then just seeing what, you know, kids who might be in a comparable financial position to what my family was in, you know, living in South Central LA, living in Watts, um, and what they get, it just really, um, it blew my mind and it made me angry. Um, And then, you know, couple that with then, you know, working at a community college and the students that we serve here and sort of seeing the trajectory, right? Students who grow up with a lack of access to educational resources, um, and then coming into college underprepared, and you know, I, I really started to see it as a continuum. And I felt very motivated to work more with students, um, to to find different ways to support students in whatever way I can. And I also just really enjoyed my interactions with students, um, doing reference work, helping them with research. And um, part of my uh, part of what I had to do at GCC, which I did not want to do, was teach research skills classes. And um, I was incredibly nervous about that. I'd never, you know, taught a class before. It's I had no aspirations of being a teacher. 
Um, but I found, you know, I actually really liked it. It took a while for me to get comfortable, but I am, I definitely um, enjoy the interactions with the students that I had, and I really liked, um, you know, seeing students' minds expand and really think critically about um, the information that we're all inundated with on a regular basis and being able to kind of to open people's eyes to that um, was was really rewarding for me. So then how did that eventually transition into LA Valley College? Um, so once I retired from roller derby because my body was too broken to go on, <laughs> um, like, okay, I guess I have to get serious about my career. And I knew that, you know, I loved working at GCC. And um, so I decided to focus my efforts on finding a full-time job at a community college. Um, so I've been part-time at a lot of different campuses. I've been part-time at Mount Sac. I was part-time at Pasadena City College. Um, I was part-time, I feel like I'm forgetting one, but I've been around a little bit. Those are long drives. Yeah, <laughs> it was, yes. Uh, but these that's the hustle of an adjunct, right? <laughs> um, and then I did start here as, as a part-timer. And when a full-time position opened up, I applied for it. So I knew I wanted to work in a community college. Um, and I did like the idea of working within LACCD um, because it, it was my community. Um, you know, I the whole time I lived in LA, um, I was in either Hollywood or Silver Lake. Um, and so, yeah, LACCD felt like like home to me. So when you apply for a librarian job, what are they actually looking for? What kind of questions are they asking you? Um, it depends on the the specific role because um, librarians have different specializations. Um, in my case, uh, I was interested in um, digital resources, um, electronic resources. And one of the things that uh, Valley was struggling with clearly, like when I when I started here as a part timer, was just <laughs> um, presenting uh, electronic resources to students in a way that made sense. Where they actually like you know finding our website, finding the resources on the website. It was really hard to navigate um, before. So specifically, I remember when I applied, like they asked me for my ideas about you know what I was going to do for the website. How was I going to make this is really boring, make our proxy server work better because it was a, it was really cumbersome for students to try to access uh, library resources from home previously. You have to do that through a proxy server. Um, a lot of it has to do increasingly um, with user experience too when we think about what librarians do. And this is not just necessarily um, online stuff. It doesn't have to be digital. It's, you know, what experience does a student have when they walk into a library? Are they able to find the information that they need? Is it easy to get around? Are signs clear? Do they make sense? Do they feel welcome? And so I've always kind of thought of myself as a user experience librarian, not just in the digital sense, but also in you know, how can we make this environment warm, welcoming, and easy for students to use in a place that they that they want to come to. So what is your responsibility now, now that um... What's your, your response to evolve to now? Um, I'm digital resources primarily. So um, I'm currently redesigning our website again for the second time since, um, since I started here. And um, we're in the process of implementing a new statewide library services platform. So I'm helping um, to coordinate that effort with one of my colleagues in the library. And what that means is it's going to be a whole different um, system for how we circulate books, for how students search for books and articles. Um, it's, yeah, it's actually going to change how we acquire books. It's going to change a lot of the different processes in the library, so it's going to have a big impact on everybody's workflows. So um, I'm part of the team that's helping to implement that right now. Um, but I'm also involved in some other initiatives on campus that are really important to me. Um, I help administer the One Book, One College program. Mm -hmm. And why don't, you, why don't you explain what that is? So um, it's, uh, it's LA Valley College's version of a common read program, which is um, pretty typical at um, most universities and increasingly community colleges where there is you know, one book that's chosen every year. And the idea is that um, as, many, as many different classes across the curriculum require their students to read that book. So, 
Um, it's supposed to be a really interdisciplinary experience, um, and we're now in our third, no, fourth year of, of One yeah. One College here at Valley. You've been fighting this for a long time, and you've been pushing it. It's, it's been working. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, it's some years it goes better than others. I think it just has to do with the book get, that gets chosen and how much it resonates with our population. Um, this year, I think um, the book is because the book is a graphic novel. It's called The Best That We Can Do. Um, it's written by, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. I believe it's T. Bui. Mm -hmm. um, and she comes from a family of Vietnamese refugees and she writes about her family's experience escaping Vietnam. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's a story of, of immigrants that I think a lot of our students can relate to. And because it's a graphic novel, it makes it really accessible to a lot of different populations here on campus. Um, so I do feel like this year has been um, a pretty big success and we're actually having the author come to Valley um, on November 20th to do a presentation and a Q&A and a book signing. So this is actually the first time since we've had the program that we've actually been able to do an author visit. Mm -hmm. um, when we did uh, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, the first year of the program, we did have members of the Lacks family come, which was, which was pretty extraordinary too. Um, and that was a really popular, well-attended event. And I think also students really, um, that book resonated with a lot of our students. Yeah. So um, I, have, I have high expectations, though, for the author event on November 20th. I think it's going to be a big success. Yeah, I mean, I think it's wonderful how successful it's been. My struggle is always that these books are so sad. Yeah. Like, every time we read it, like, it's so sad. I don't want to spend so much time in sadness. Oh, you keep nominating happy books then. I, um. keep, I keep nominating happy books. I, I, every year I nominate happy books. And every year it's like, now, so the first time I started, I started okay. reading the first few. And there's like, wow, this is so sad. I got to stop. I just, oh, it's no. affecting my day. Oh, no. And okay. then, and then um, now I just read the summaries. Okay. Second, it doesn't last all, it doesn't last like a month of just being sad. I'm not judging you at all. <laughs> it's, it's fair and honest, John. <laughs> so, so Megan... Um, so, so uplifting books for I, I'll take that into consideration when the when the committee meets and we do we try to have a fairly democratic process though for how the books for the program get chosen. Well, it's just, very broad. I mean, you yeah. Asked, I mean, when I read the the summaries, mm -hmm. I go, oh, this makes so much sense. Yeah. I don't want to read it because I don't want to be sad for a month. But oh, this, I mean, so I don't. I'm not. I'm not digging on your picks. I think your picks have been really wonderful. <laughs> But the, I was all ready to like somehow fit math in this common book read, mm -hmm. and I, and then I just stopped because I didn't want to be so sad for so long. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, well, perhaps next year's selection will be more uplifting. Mm -hmm. I'll definitely um, share your comments with the the One Book One College <laughs> committee, and we'll see where that goes. Yeah. In addition to the One Book, One College, you've been instrumental in, in the college's work with open educational resources. Yeah. Can you share a little bit about, you know, your, your work on that, where we're at now, what you're excited about? Yeah. Um, so we've, uh, so I, I, I've led the effort to apply for a couple of different um, grants related to open educational resources. And then why don't you explain what, what that is? So an open educational resource, or OER, um, I think most of us think of it as probably a textbook, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. It's an it's educational material that um, is open access. So that means um, free to use for both instructors and students, and ideally also free to modify. Um, so you can actually take that work and customize it and try to make it as relevant as you can for, for the students that you're serving, that you're teaching. Um, so, yeah, I've been uh, working on a couple of different grants related to open educational resources. I think um, our college has been pretty successful in some ways, um, getting faculty to not even just necessarily adopt OERs, but really carefully consider the implications of textbook cost before they they choose a book for their for their class. And so um, I think what we've seen is not only the adoption of OERs, but just a general reduction in textbook costs for our students, which has um, been really positive. You know, uh, we have a cost savings calculator on our OER website, and right now we're at something like $1.8 million in the student cost savings, which is an estimate, but I think it just, you know, it really indicates the, the trajectory that we're on as an institution. And I think in higher education in general, um, the trend is towards you know how can we bring down these outrageous textbook costs and and not have textbook costs be a barrier to success for our students and also how can we make materials more accessible 
more relevant um, because a lot of times when you get stuck in the trap of using publisher resources exclusively, you um, wind up with material that might be outdated, that might not be you know web accessible. Um, so I think there's there's some new considerations too that are also driving the move towards using more open educational resources and lower cost resources for our students. I think one of the big advantages is that I tell my students anytime you learn anything from a textbook, it takes about 15 years for something to get into a textbook. Mm -hmm. So by the time you're reading it, it's what happened 15 years ago, which yeah. is okay. You don't know anything. So being 15 <laughs> years late on your on your topic, that's fine. And like a program like let's say Stat 100 is is completely just uh, um, they have no textbook, but they have gotten articles that they've either written or that they had borrowed. So those that's all current information. Mm -hmm. It's not 15 years old. Mm -hmm. So I think one thing is that it forces uh, professors to now um, access current information, mm -hmm. right? So especially in technology, when you read the textbook and you go go to a job interview, the vocabulary is completely different. Yeah. I mean, if you think about right, the vocabulary for your computer 15 years ago, we weren't talking about the memes or anything like that, right? So I think one thing is that it, it allows you to be current. Mm -hmm. And then I know I've always been a person's pushback on that because I've wanted, I look at the textbook companies like the music industry, mm -hmm. and then once you make things free, then sort of the editor goes away, that person loses the job. There's a whole bunch of things that go into writing a textbook, an mm -hmm. editor, an index, a table of contents that are all important, and just sort of that constant improvement. And now we've sort of come to the point where a lot of the large textbook vendors are all going bankrupt. Mm. So I think we're past the point of saying, I kind of want this industry to survive. Mm -hmm. We are in the uh, Napster, the music industry is going <laughs> to die, it's never going to change. So if we don't start thinking about OER right now, when that industry dies, what are we going to have? Right. So I think I've sort of, I've gone the entire arc Talk. Um, looking at because um, I, I talk with all the the textbook vendors mm -hmm. of just sort of where they're like, and I follow sort of where the balance sheets are for the different companies, mm -hmm. and they've all gone bankrupt. I think Pierce College, and uh, not Pierce College, uh, Pearson Textbook, which is the largest textbook company in the world, they lost. They went from two billion to one point three billion mm -hmm. in revenue. And then I think the president said, that was on purpose. Like, that's never on purpose, <laughs> right? So we can see now that um, Pearson, which was the gold standard in service, mm -hmm. they, they pulled all their IT people. So now they're, they're trying to fight all these sort of low margin vendors. And I don't think they can. I think they're too big. I think mm -hmm. they're just, I think they're going to go out of business. I mean, I think, I think one of the tricky things with, um, with OER and uh, well, I think I think it also has to do with online education in general. And it's one one of my other interests at um, Valley and just in general is around professional development. Um, so you know, I I try to put a lot of time and effort into professional development for faculty here. It's a role that I play in the library in terms of you know, it's one thing to for the library to acquire all these tools, but if our faculty don't know how to use them. Um, then that information often doesn't get disseminated to students. So, um, and so I think, I think there are challenges around um, online education, distance education, and these resources that we've all become very dependent on using from from publishers. So, for example, like um, like homework platforms. For example, um, I feel like one of the best forms of professional development that I've done since. Uh, coming to Valley is taking classes and LACCD taking online classes because I get to experience firsthand a lot of the challenges that our students experience with um, some of the, the online resources that our faculty choose um, and using some of these homework platforms that are not web accessible um, is incredibly frustrating and I'm not even coming at it with with you know any kind of disability you know it's not an issue for in my case of not being able to use a screen reader but if you know if 
if some homework platform has some weird JavaScript plugin and my browser isn't compatible with it and I'm trying to submit an answer to a question and it like makes my browser crash and then I've just lost all of the work that I've done. Um, Unfortunately, I'm a very determined student, so I'm probably going to do it again. But I can see a situation where a lot of students probably would just give up at that point because, you know, the the homework platform isn't working for them. And right. so that's a real barrier for our students. And so I'm, I guess I'm just thinking critically and constantly about the types of resources that we're choosing for our students, whether it's OER or through a publisher, and whether or not you know it meets accessibility needs, whether or not it's easy to use, whether or not it integrates with the other technology that we have available here. So that's something that I'm super interested in and I continue to be interested in, and I really like working with faculty on those issues, and I like collaborating with, with DE around um, delivery of online instruction. Yeah, because I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you're doing this because I do not believe we're going to be able to deliver content like we have. There's going to be a platform that comes out that makes all of what you're talking about easier. I hope so. But it's not on the, <laughs> it's not on the horizon. I mean, there's, there's too much money involved for it not to exist eventually, mm-hmm. right? Just to have something where... It is uh, where deaf people and vision impaired people can look at, can see the content and the teachers can upload it. Something's going to be created at some point. It's just not on the horizon yet. But but the fact that you have us thinking about it right now Mm -hmm. is good because I think this time, the time that is coming where you have textbooks and this is edition one, edition two. I remember the president of um, uh, Pearson was talking about just removing versions. Mm. So then you can't buy another textbook. Mm-hmm. Right. So you'll have fall 2019, spring 2019, whatever edits they made. They're not they're not really going to tell you, right? You're not going to know what the differences are. Right. So you can sort of see that the world that as we know it is going gonna, is gonna to change. Yeah, we're in a weird place right now, I think. Um, and that's reflected in also some of the, the half-baked technology that we keep deploying because we maybe don't know any better yet but yeah we're we're getting there and i think it's a process of educating ourselves and i think the experimentation ahead of the curve is good yeah it's better to be ahead of the curve trying a lot of things and one person screwing something up rather than all of us screwing up things up because now we're forced to change all at the same time right right megan you've been such a a leader at valley college since you've been here and it seems like when you started as a full-time faculty member it didn't take long before you were involved in you know some of the initiatives that you're describing now some of the initiatives that you probably haven't talked about yet but you uh you continually you know push the envelope here um in in all the right ways um your your focus on student success your focus on professional development for faculty which ultimately ties you know to student success Mm -hmm. is is something that we all highly value here Uh, thank you and want to say thank you so much for for joining us taking some time out of your day sitting down and sharing your your story with how you got here um, if students are interested in, in asking you questions about your your experiences as in roller derby or in, <laughs> in what library science was like at ucla or yeah. faculty are looking to connect in terms of, of information about oer one book one campus or, or anything else along those lines what's the best way for for folks to get a hold of you email is probably your best bet um i am Kason, C-A-S-O-N-M-G, Megan Gaynor, at uh, LABC.edu. Thanks, Megan. <laughs> You've been listening to the Valley College Connection radio show and podcast with professors Scott Weigand and John Kawai. If you would like to be a guest, recommend a topic, or find out more information, please email kvcm at LABC.edu. That's kvcm at LABC.edu. This has been a production of 95.1 KVCM Monarch Radio, The Voice of Valley College, and The Broadcasting Club. Thank you for listening.